season of Lent, I'm sorry, in a season of Advent and celebrating Christmas and the new year and things like that. And so now uh, transitioning back, like I said, to the book of John. This morning we're going to look at John chapter 12 verses 36 through 50. Um, I'll read those in just a second, but let's pray before uh, we dive into that. God, thank you for the opportunity we've been, uh, that we've had to be together so far this morning to, to sing together, to worship together, to hear from your word. God, I pray over the next few minutes as we dive specifically into John chapter 12 um, that you would be at work in our hearts and minds, that we would hear from you. God, that you would draw us to yourself. God, I recognize that um, this morning I, I probably have little, little to say and my words are not important at all. But God, your words, what we would hear from you are of utmost importance. And so God, I pray that that's what we'd hear. Pray that you would draw us to yourself. Pray that you would make yourself known to us. God, pray that you would be glorified in this place. And we ask this in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. John chapter 12, verses 36 through 50. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Last week, Ben dealt with the first part of John chapter 12, and, we mentioned that we, and he mentioned that we are at a transition point in the book of John. Up until now, John has been telling us the story of a very uh, public ministry of Jesus where he has healed people, raised Lazarus from the dead, changed water to wine, fed thousands of people miraculously, um, done other signs and miracles. But at this point in the story, John is sort of summing up and sort of putting um, an end, capping off all that has come before uh, immediately after this passage in John chapter 12 that, that I just read, immediately after these verses, we see Jesus alone with his disciples and closest friends in the days and hours leading up to the cross and resurrection. 
Our passage starts really at the end of last week's um, set of verses that Ben looked at, where Jesus says, while you have the light, believe in the light. And then it says Jesus departed and hid himself from them. And then over the next few verses, 37 through 43, John is sort of, uh, like I said, capping off the story that he's been telling us before we hear these final words of Jesus prior to this transition away from the public world for just a little while. For whatever reason, Jesus goes and hides himself away from everything. And at some point between the events of what Ben talked about last week, um, and before we see the scene in John chapter 13, Jesus with his disciples, Jesus says this final set of things, starting in verse 44, this final call to belief. But where Ben ended uh, the passage last week when reading through it was this scene where, um, as the scripture says, uh, some Greeks have come to the Passover feast where Jesus is, and they want to see Jesus. They have some questions for Jesus. They want to interact with him, whatever it is. And instead of responding to their inquiries, Jesus seems to sort of speak in riddles for a moment. Jesus starts talking about the hour being at hand, the grain of wheat falling to the ground, the grain of wheat falling to the ground in order to die, and then to bear much fruit. And he says some other things that just doesn't maybe seem to, to make sense upon first reading it. But, right, because what does any of that have to do with these folks who are showing up to ask Jesus some questions? They want to understand some things. They want to understand some things about the world. And then Jesus is just saying something that doesn't seem to fit with why they're there. And the reality of the situation is this, though. I think that Jesus was probably gazing beyond this immediate request of him to answer some questions and instead looking ahead to his ultimate purpose. They showed up hoping to get some understanding about things, about the world. But what matters most to Jesus in this moment is not helping them to understand some things right now. It's pointing them ultimately to what Jesus is there for, what Jesus is about. Why Jesus showed up in the first place, right? It's about helping them uh, understand that Jesus is here to rescue the world, not just talk about it or explain it. And everything he's been about has had the purpose of leading people to believe in him and have life in his name as a result. To use the words that Jesus used himself, he's been bringing light to the darkness, and he wants people to see who he is so they might have life in him. I say all that because these final words of John and then final words of Jesus, or these final words of John about the public life of Jesus and then Jesus' final call to believe for people here, I think that context helps it make sense as, to about, as, as we dive into those verses, right? It helps us see that Jesus has something else in mind. That something else in mind is belief in him. That something else in mind is calling people to faith in him that they might have life. Ben talked about that life last week. And in the passage I just read, there are basically two movements. Like I said, verses 33, I mean 37 through 43 are um, deal with sort of the dilemma of unbelief that Jesus has shown up, he's done these things, but yet people aren't believing for whatever reason. And then verses 44 through 50 contain Jesus' last like call to believe in him. 
So I just want to walk through those two movements for a moment, point out some things about them, dive into them before moving to um, some things for us to take away. The things that we're going to take away this morning are going to be wrapped around some questions that we'll ask of this passage. But like I said, first off, we're just going to dive in. Verse 37 starts off with this dilemma. John says explicitly, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. Jesus' fellow Israelites did not see Jesus for who he really was, and so they're rejecting him. John goes on in verses 38 through 40 to quote from the book of Isaiah. And John quotes from the book of Isaiah in order to tie Jesus' experience of being rejected to the experience of Isaiah being rejected. Right, specifically in verse 40, he quotes from Isaiah 6 when he says he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. That's a quote from Isaiah chapter 6 verse 10. Isaiah 6 is the famous passage where Isaiah sees God sitting on his throne And Isaiah responds with incredible humility and repentance as he recognizes his own uncleanliness in the face of God's holiness. And then after that moment of recognizing himself for who he is, seeing God is holy, God commissions Isaiah to go and speak to the Israelites. But in that commission, God tells Isaiah up front, that people are not going to hear what you have to say. And specifically, Isaiah 6, verses 9 through 11, and he said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste. So Isaiah has this incredible encounter with God, sees God as holy, recognizes his own state, receives this commission, and God says, go and tell them what I'm giving you to say. They're not going to listen but go do it anyway. Right? It's the measure of Isaiah's faithfulness is not that people would hear and respond. The measure of his faithfulness is that he would keep going even though the people were not responding in faith and repentance. And John, in going back to Isaiah 6 and talking about that same experience that Isaiah had, like I said, is tying Isaiah and Jesus' experience together. Jesus has shown up. Jesus has called people to faith. Jesus has done, been about his father's business. And yet they're not responding. Verses 42 and 43, I mean, verses 42 and 43 do go on to tell us that there were some authorities who did believe in Jesus, maybe people like Nicodemus. But for whatever reason, these leaders cared more about the public perception of themselves than anything else. So they didn't acknowledge Jesus publicly. The fact of the matter is, 
the fact of the matter is the idols of their heart took precedence over the call of Jesus. We'll come back to that idea in just a bit. But let me just say this about the language being used here about their hearts being hardened. It's doubtful that John had in mind a rigid explanation for unbelief. John probably wasn't arguing for a predestinarian causality of unbelief. That's probably not his purposes here because throughout John's gospel, God's sovereignty and human responsibility are held together. They go hand in hand. It probably just wasn't a concern of John. And even in this passage when John is talking about how they're not believing, Jesus is still calling people to believe in him. Right in verse 36, believe while you have the light. The situation here is not that God is willfully hardening the hearts of those who want to believe. The situation is, is that those whom should believe are not doing so, just like in Isaiah. And in choosing to not believe, their hearts are being hardened. It's not that Jesus' purposes have failed just like Isaiah's purposes didn't fail. It's not that Jesus' message hasn't been heard. It's that some people are willfully making choices to not believe or to hide their belief. There's willful decision here that Jesus is here presenting the light, offering living water, and his own people are saying, we don't want that. But their rejection of Jesus their rejection of Jesus' call to believe in him ultimately leads to the greater purposes of God because through Christ's rejection, salvation will be won for Israel and for the Greeks and for the entire world as Jesus goes to the cross, dies on that cross, and rises from the dead. So even in their unbelief, God's purposes are still at work, even in their rejection of Christ, God is still at work. Verses 45, I mean 44 through 50, contain Jesus' final plea for belief. Let me read them again. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light. So that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I do not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me does not receive my words as a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life, what I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. With these final words of Jesus that John records for us, many of the themes from the book of John are coming together in this final call, this final plea for belief. In verses 44 and 49, we're reminded that Jesus was sent by the Father. In verses 44, I mean 45 and 49, we're reminded that God is the sole authority for what Jesus is saying. In verse 46, 
Jesus is the light shining in the darkness. In verse 47, he's bringing salvation to the world. In verse 50, he's offering life to those who respond in faith. We've seen these things over and over and over in the book of John. And so what we should hear in this final call to belief is this. The greatest mistake that one can make is to see the light that Jesus is offering and then to reject it. Thinking that it has no connection to God. When we see Jesus, we make a decision about Jesus, we're ultimately making a decision about God. Now with all that said, I'd like to structure what we take away from this passage around these four questions. Four questions. In John 12, verses 36 through 50, who is God? What does God do? What does that say about who we are? And finally, how then should we live? So first, let's ask the question of this passage, who is God? John 12, 41 says this, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. When Isaiah wrote that, he was referencing this um, experience he had where he saw God seated on his throne. But now, John is taking these words from Isaiah and applying this to Jesus. And in doing so, he's saying that when Isaiah saw God, he saw the glory of Jesus. John's already told us that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Uh, a literal translation of that idea might be that Jesus tabernacled among us. No translation actually says that. It's not a word that we use. But the idea in the Old Testament is that God's tabernacle or God's temple was the place where God dwelled with his people. The idea of God dwelling with his people runs throughout the book of John. The idea that Jesus is the place where heaven and earth come together, where God and man meet. Part of the point of the story of John is that this is what it looks like for God to come and dwell with his people as he had always intended. We could say it another way. If you want to know who God is, then look at Jesus. John's gospel states it starkly in chapter 1, verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. He has made him known. That last phrase is literally something to the effect that we would use in terms of preaching, but that last phrase is literally something along the lines of he has exegeted him. Or in other words, he has laid bare the truth of who God really is. Jesus is the human face of God, the living presence of the loving God. So often I think our thoughts about God are not formed around what we see from Jesus. So often um, there are other influences from culture or philosophy or from just whatever our experiences in life are, whatever society we come from, that help to define our idea of who God is. And we try to fit Jesus into that frame. But I think part of what John is telling us is that it's the wrong way. You only know who the true God is when you look hard at Jesus. And then revise your initial opinions around what you see 
in Jesus. Second, what does he do? What does God do? Verse 47 reads like this. If anyone hears my words, does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Well, what does God do? He saves. He offers redemption. What does Jesus do? He saves. Jesus' purpose is not to condemn. Jesus' purpose is not to harden hearts. His purpose is to save. Or as verse 46 says, to be light in the darkness. The point of this passage, the point of the whole book of John, is that Jesus has been doing things to help people see who he is, to believe in him, to put their faith in him, and ultimately to have life in him. Jesus didn't come and say the things that he said and do the things that he did and die on a cross and rise from the dead to condemn people. Jesus did that to save, to offer real life, to connect people with God. In doing so, Jesus wins this great victory that one day leads to the redemption and renewal of all things. But it's at the foot of the cross where we can meet the God who came to meet us. To meet the God who came to be light in the darkness and to save us from our greatest enemies. What does God do? What does Jesus do? Well, he saves us. He saves us from our greatest enemies and he saves us to life eternal and life abundant with God. Third, what does this passage tell us about who we are? For those of us who have met Jesus at the foot of the cross, who have believed in him, for those of us who have not yet believed, for all of us, it says that we are people in need of redemption. If Jesus needed to come to make a way for us to meet God, to light the path that leads to the cross, it means apart from Jesus, we're not going to get there on our own. Nonetheless, God still wants us to get there. Right? If we're created in the image of God, created to know and worship God, but separated from God because of the fallenness of our world, then we actually needed God to act on our behalf in order to get to him. This passage starts with John talking about Jesus calling God's own people to believe in him and then them not doing so. But Jesus was out there calling them anyway. He showed up. He invited them in. He eventually makes a way for them in. Dying on the cross, being resurrected, defeating our greatest enemies and offering us a new life and a way to meet God and to be connected with him. I believe from the very beginning, from creation, God's intention was to create a world, a place for him to dwell with his people. We humans mess that up. But God's purposes to dwell with his people could not be thwarted. And so God makes a way. In talking about the way that Jesus has made for us, Tim Keller says this, The gospel is this, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe, yet at the very same time we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. So who are you? Who are we? 
what does this passage say about who we are? Well, it says that we are people that God went out and made a way for. If you don't know Jesus, you are someone that God is inviting into the family of God. You are someone that, that is being invited to meet Jesus at the cross, to become part of God's family at the cross, because Jesus made a way for you to do that. So if you haven't met Jesus at the cross, will you do so? And if you do know him, you are God's child, welcomed in because of Jesus, joint heirs of a world to come with our Savior, Jesus, because Jesus has made a way. Jesus has made a way. What does this say about who we are? We are people that Jesus has made a way for us to meet at the cross. And finally, how then should we live? Believing in Jesus means that we look to Jesus as our ultimate source of life. If you look at verses 42 and 43, let me read them again. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. So they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Certain Pharisees thought that there was more to gain in the praise of others than the life that comes from Jesus. They were more enthralled by the idols of their heart than anything else. The idols of their heart being the praise of others. For us, it might be possible as well to believe in Jesus, but then to look to the idols of our heart to provide life. Over the years here at Redemption, we've talked about the idols of our heart a lot. And by that, I simply mean anything that absorbs our heart and imagination and minds more than God. Anything we seek to give us the life that only God can give us. It's anything that we look at and say, if I have that, then I'll have value and meaning and significance. Just like these Pharisees were looking for the praise of others to give them value and meaning and significance. But the truth is, idols will never give you those things. In the long run, they will rob you of joy. They will steal your assurance. They will not forgive you when you fail them. And they will trap you in this unending loop of trying to get that thing you crave only to leave you unsatisfied and wanting more. But wanting more that will never fill you up. Such that she'll try again over and over and over and never be satisfied. So how then should we live? We should live remembering that every single day there will be a battle fought in our hearts and minds. Who will have the affection of our hearts and minds? Will we look to Jesus for life or will we depend on our idols? Will we keep trying to drink sand or will we go instead to the source of life and find living water, right? That's what Jesus said of himself, living water. Overall, the call for us this morning is pretty simple. The call for us this morning is just to come and be with Jesus. Either for the first time recognizing that God has made a way for us to meet him 
and to be in the family of God. Or the call is for us to come back again and compare the idols of our heart to Jesus, recognizing that he is better and responding in repentance and faith. The call for our lives this morning is pretty simple. It's just this, will you come to Jesus? Will you come to Jesus for the first time? Will you come back to Jesus recognizing that sometimes there are idols in our heart that get in the way? Will you come to Jesus? Will you come to Jesus for the first time? Will you come back in repentance and faith recognizing through it all Jesus has made a way for us to meet God. Jesus has made a way for us to be with him. And nothing has thwarted God's plans. Will you come to Jesus? We're going to enter into a time of response. And during that time of response, I would encourage you to simply keep asking yourself that question. Will you come to Jesus? What's in the way? What's preventing you? Is there anything that you need to deal with that's keeping you from coming to Jesus? During this time of response, uh, the band will lead us in some songs. Uh, we have an opportunity to give. There's a giving basket in the back. We put our tithes and offerings. Uh, a lot of us do that digitally, probably straight from our bank accounts or some other way. But this is an opportunity for us to remember that giving is actually an act of response and worship. And during this time as well, we have an opportunity to take communion. We take communion every Sunday at Redemption in order to remember what Christ has done for us and to proclaim to one another that we believe it, that it's true, that it's good. So just a moment, uh, I'll pray for us. And after doing so, I would invite you to come down uh, this aisle, take the wine, I mean, take the bread, dip it in the wine or juice, take one of the little sanitary cups, whatever it might be. But in doing so, remembering the blood of Christ that was shed for us, um, the body of Christ that was given for us, uh, remembering the truth of the gospel that God has done something great for us and made a way for us, proclaiming to one another that we believe it. I'm going to pray for us and we'll continue on in that time of response.